right, everybody. Welcome. This is Project Herpetoculture Podcast, and I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined as always by the dashing, charismatic, and handsome Philip Leeds of Arids Only. And we have an amazing show today. I'm really excited for this one. And before we jump in with our guest, um, we're going to go through our standard housekeeping and sponsors. So first, I want to give a shout out to Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. Here we go. Also, oh yeah. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Mr. Vernal Pools, Charlie Davenport, who edits our audio and also provides our fantastic theme music. Shout out to Charlie. The man. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And then I want to talk about our sponsors. So we have uh, Custom Reptile Habitats. They've been with us since day one, and they are makers of premium PVC reptile enclosures. They also have a whole bunch of cool products on their website, including universal rocks backgrounds and water bowls and such. So if you're in the market for any of that and you're interested in making a purchase, if you do so through our affiliate link posted in our bio or description, we'll receive a small uh, commission at no additional cost to you. And that's always greatly appreciated on our end. We also have Cold-Blooded Caffeine, and they are roasters of delicious coffees from all over the world. Um, they donate 5% of the proceeds from each bag of coffee sold to conservation in those equatorial coffee growing regions where you also find some incredible herpetofunnel biodiversity. So check them out and try our single origin from Rwanda. It's a delicious uh, private label coffee we have for them. Um, but really any coffee you want to try there, if you use our discount code, uh, Project Herp, you'll get 10% off your order. So check them out. And we also have Fairytale Dragons. So that's Heather Moy and Ron St. Pierre, true legends in the herpetoculture space. And um, they're producing some of the finest quality bearded dragons on the planet and addition to a bunch of other cool her, her projects. So check them out and give them a follow on the socials. And then lastly, we have Tamura Designs, um, our newest sponsor. And um, we're really honored that uh, Tamura chose to sign on as a sponsor of us. Um, we're huge fans of Dale's work, um, producing some of the finest reptile enclosures on the planet alongside amazing deli cup displays for shows, um, and these incredible multi-unit condos that you can see just right over here. Um, really just providing a lot of novel solutions for problems that we often face in um, in the herpetoculture space, housing our animals appropriately. So check them out. And um, if you do end up placing an order there, you can use the code herpetoculture for 50% off one item. That's 15% off one item using the code herpetoculture. And lastly, I'll just give a quick plug for our uh, Patreon. We're building that up lately and we're doing monthly um, subscribers only live chats. So if you're interested in joining our Patreon and having a little bit more FaceTime with us, um, please feel free. We're at patreon.com slash project herpetoculture. And we have tiers starting at about five bucks a month. So yeah, anything I missed there, Phil, or anything you want to add? No, I want to add though. So two two things. First about our sponsors. Um, listen. Um, we, we, we are absolutely blown away and floored that anybody would want to sponsor or contribute to what we're doing in the first place. So, so taking the time, like, I don't care if it's five bucks, you know what I mean? Like, like as something as small as what you'd spend on a cup of coffee or whatever would be better served with, with people like our sponsors than Starbucks or Walmart. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you give them five bucks, they'll, they'll, benefit from it way more than most of the places that get your money uh, each day. And then with regard to our Patreon, you know, uh, we basically see that as a, as like a tip, 
right? It's just a way for people to help kind of kick us a little bit for what we're up to. Uh, Roy and I both have full, full lives and, and pretty intense schedules. Um, you know, like I've got, I've got a, a, a baby on the way now, which is like a total mind blower. And so, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Heck, hey, uh, yeah. Uh, the wife is gravid as someone hilariously put it up on my, uh, <laughs> on my, uh, on my, on my Instagram. I thought that was really funny, but you know, uh, in times, in times like these where th- things are so crazy and, 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 um, you know, you really, you really are voting with your dollar. Please take the time to, to, to do so in a way that is meaningful for the, for the world in which you, uh, spend most of your time, which is herpetoculture. So thanks for everybody, you know? Yeah, man. Thanks for that. Appreciate that addition yeah. there. <laughs> all right. Well, with all of that said, I'm very excited to introduce our very patient guest um, waiting for us to get through our intro there. And that is um, Hannes joining us all the way from Germany. Um, he has an Instagram account, Der Spinner. Hannes, welcome Hi. to the show. Glad to be here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm really glad you're here, man. Yeah, we've been talking, I mean, really since I feel like we started the show pretty early on, you and I have been corresponding. You've you've offered a lot of great feedback. And you, anytime we're talking about invertebrates on the show, or you're always jumping in and, and um, offering some insights there from your your side of the field. So I'm really excited that we're finally, we've managed to do it. We've got you on the show. We've got the chance to talk. And um, yeah, how are you doing today? Yeah, pretty good. Um, as I said, really glad to be here. And um, yeah, you, you guys are doing a great job with this podcast. This was yeah something that I was missing in my life and I didn't knew it before I found the podcast. So um, yeah, really, really thankful to to be here today. Oh, that's that's cool. awesome. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit of actually just really quick elaborate on the you were telling us before we started recording, but like the your your namesake and sort of how it's a play. Okay. So so my name on Instagram is uh, der underscore spinner and a spinner in in German slang is a a crazy person, not like dangerous crazy, but a, a bit crazy. And spinner is the German word for spider. So it's kind of a, a play of words. Crazy for spiders, if you want. So, I love it. Thank you. I love it. I think it's good. I love the added context. It's it's fun. Yeah. Agreed. Well, um, just to kind of start out, I'm curious to just kind of hear about your origin story as it relates to um, animal keeping. I guess you know it's obviously you're you're kind of um, um, specializing in vertebrates. Um, but you also have experience keeping reptiles. So I'm curious, how did all of that start for you, and um, where do you find yourself now? So I was always really interested in all kinds of animals, really didn't matter what. But when I turned around three or four, so when you start yeah, thinking and remembering, I don't know what it was, by, but I was really, really interested in all kinds of reptiles, amphibians and invertebrates, but mainly reptiles and mainly lizards and geckos. Geckos were the holy grail for me when I was a kid. Uh, I remember drawing pictures of the... Um, Lugodactylus williamsi, the the electric uh, yeah. blue day geckos, yeah. and um, yeah, I, I spent all my my free time outside turning around rotten logs to look for fire salamanders or, or newts, uh, toads, frogs. Um, I mean, here in Germany, it's it's not like I imagine it is in some parts of the U.S. where you have your your backyard full of anoles or fence lizards or or, or king snakes or stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's kind of, especially in the area where I live in Germany, it's, it's 
not unique, but back in the day when I was a kid, it was really special for me to find reptiles in the wild. And mm -hmm. so I was always yeah, drawn to the um, to the tropics. When we visited zoos, I was amazed by the, the Amazon styled enclosures or yeah, everything that was exotic or, or tropical. And um, yeah, I was always, as I said, always interested in reptiles and stuff. And when I was in second grade, I finally talked my parents into getting leopard geckos. Um, so my, my first animals at home were actually mice. So I always wanted lizards, but my parents said, okay, let's try with, with mice first. And if they stay alive and you take good care of them and you read some books, you can, maybe we can talk about geckos. And so I had mice from when I was five until I was seven or eight. And then, yeah, then we, we got our first, uh, two leopard geckos. And when you have leopard geckos, you go on, on reptile expos, you go on, you, you go to pet stores to buy feeders. And um, yeah, then I stumbled across stick insects. So phasmids and phasmids are the perfect um, invertebrates to keep when you are a kid because they are cheap. You can feed them easily. They don't require much, much heating or yeah, they are not really difficult to keep and breed. And um, then I got my first few phasmid species and was was breeding them. Or yeah, in the first two years, I was just keeping them, and then the the breeding started when I read more and got more books on them. And yeah, that's a bit uh, crossing over the stories right now. But I really enjoy reading and going on a deep dive about any kind of topic of which is related mm -hmm. to animals. So um, when I was a kid, I always wished for for books on on animals for Christmas. Of course, some some Lego Star Wars too, but uh, mainly mainly animal books. And um, sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah that yeah, the, this this keeping of of phasmids really got me into the the deeper literature because in the beginning I always had books like on reptiles and amphibians or some some animal lexicon. And when I got into phasmids, I wished for a special book just about phasmids, and it was not made for kids. It was really scientific. And that really, yeah, created a path uh, where I went on, um, yeah, learning and reading. So um, then I had phasmids and then I had mantids. So the, the praying mantis, um, I did not breed them. I had some, some of the, the casual species just for, just for fun. Um, a few years after that, I got into beetles, not really heavily, but just because uh, you you know the, the the feeding flower beetles, you use the larva for, yeah, yeah. and they are really cheap. And I I once bought a, a pack of them out of fun, and then they the beetles emerged one day, and I bred them, and then I got some other African flower beetle species, and some stag beetles from Southeast Asia, and some rhino beetles from South America. Um, yeah, and and one day in this this insect insect keeping world, I thought hmm, you can't be a real um, terrariana. So terrariana is is the German word for for exotic pet keeper. I don't know for people mm -hmm. who keep stuff in terrariums. And I thought to myself, you can't be a real terrariana without um, without keeping tarantulas. And I was mm -hmm. not really afraid of spiders, but I was also not very um, yeah. They they kind of freaked me out if they moved too fast or if you had a, like a, this this big uh i don't know the common name uh, house house spiders in the basement my dad always yeah, had yeah. To them out and i was a bit afraid of them but um yeah then i started to read more about tarantulas and see the the big diversity in them 
And yeah, then I got my first two tarantulas when I was, I believe, 14, I think. Yeah, maybe 14. And yeah, when you have two tarantulas, you see, okay, they're kind of kind of easy to keep. Uh, if you just keep them, kind of easy to keep. And there are a, a whole lot of more species. And yeah, a week later, I had five. And a month later, I had 20. And then I stopped counting. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get back later to that topic. So that mm -hmm. isn't maybe, that is not the best way to start with any kinds of animals. Um, yeah, but I got caught up in, in this and um, yeah, then I then I was shopping for feeders and some tarantulas at my local local store and they had um, a Cupinius guitarsi sling. So Cupinius guitarsi are wandering spiders from um, Latin America and this mm. variety from, from Panama, they look bright orange, at least the females when they're adults wow. and they had a picture of an adult female on the um on the shelf where all the little slings were stored mm -hmm. and uh, I, I just googled the name and i thought oh okay it's it's not it's not deadly venomous so i will take it home and um <laughs> and uh, yeah then then i noticed that these true spiders they they grow much faster and you can oh, just they're, they're just crazy feeders if you compare to tarantulas you drop a cricket in with um with the genus cupinius they dropped around from the ceiling and rolling around and it was so cool to watch so i i got a bit into into true spiders there and um this was where my career if you want uh started because then i created an instagram account and um mm -hmm started posting pictures of my animals and I started my first breeding projects with different kinds of uh, of uh, true spiders and yeah I started to connect with people and yeah then then new friendships uh, formed and I met some people a few years ago on Instagram and now they are one of my best friends in the in the hobby not not only the hobby but also in personal life and um yeah but yeah i kind of kind of lost the the past that's okay. no that's good all right i i have a question so something i'm i'm really curious about because i i just don't know when i think about um so much so many so many reptiles and amphibians uh what comes to my mind about the way they get here and you know there's sort of their importation from the wild into captivity and we have this pretty big disparity between ones that are very, very regularly captive bred, like your bearded dragons, your leopard geckos, corn snakes, ball pythons, et cetera. And then we have all these others, which like sometimes they're captive bred, but much of the time they're a wild caught import in some way. Is this also true of, say, your phasmids, your mantids, you know, some of your, you know, different various uh, spiders and tarantula species or these or, or, or is there a big disparity? In, in within the invertebrate world are there some that are just regularly captive bred and some that are are not or are they all pretty much brought in from the wild a uh, very good question um it's yeah it's it's kinda kinda the same um with with reptiles so i speak for arachnids here i'm, I'm not <laughs> that into phasmids and mantids anymore as i was when i was 10 12 okay. so i can only speak about our spiders and scorpions and you have some some hobby stables um, that you can compare to leopard geckos, bearded dragons that yeah got brought into in decades ago, like the the big uh, Goliath birth eaters. Um, 
Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know the common names all the time because That's in the right. internet world, and I think also in the reptile world, you, you don't use common, common, common names. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the genus Terraphosa, for example, um, they got into the hobby when in the in the 90s, I think. And um, yeah, most of tarantulas are pretty easy to breed. So mm -hmm. um, you have you have your, your your staples, your hobby staples that are captive bred here. Um, but uh, the the big issue in the invertebrate world is that it's much easier to to catch something, bring it uh, bring it to to your home from another country. And many people say, yeah, I have captive bred offspring of this and that species. And captive bred just means they they caught a pregnant female and had laid an egg sac, and yeah, mm -hmm. then they have offspring. So and um, that is a big issue too. But I think the the problem. That why you can't compare the reptile hobby and the invertebrate hobby in that case so easily is that um, we have hundreds of hundreds of species, and I think the alone in tarantulas, the the market is so large, and there are so many species that you can't say it for all. I mean, there are for sure, I think fifty, hundred, hundred species maybe that are easily captive bred since many years, but they are also many species that you can easily captive breed but they are still coming in in wild courts so kind of kind of hard topic here is it related yeah. is it related to um like the the value of the wild caught animal is so low that people can command a very low price so there's not necessarily a big um you know people people aren't necessarily financially motivated to propagate those species in captivity because of the low price and the competition with imports is that sort of similar to the way it is with our uh with you know with like various captive bred reptiles is it the same kind of uh dichotomy yes definitely um people always only want to breed the the newest stuff the the high end stuff that have mm -hmm. big value and not everyone of course but um for example, the the Asian forest scorpions, the whole genus Heterometros. Okay, the, the genus was split some years ago, and there are no different genera in it. But Heterometros, the the classic um, black big scorpion, not the not the emperor scorpion, but the other ones from Asia. Mm -hmm. um, they are so easy to breed, and they are in the hobby for for decades. But they like every month there's an import to to the US or to to Europe with hundreds of them and if you buy them on wholesale 500 of them if you if you buy 500 of these adult scorpions one costs only one to three dollars so um yeah that's because in in some parts of asia they are they are farmed for for food um and i think in in many in many countries in many tropical countries for example in in, in tanzania um I have a friend who told me who was an importer back in the in the 90s and early 2000s and he told me that in Tanzania um everything that came out of Tanzania in vertebrate rice so tarantulas centipedes scorpions everything was just uh, $1 and if you if you bought it in wholesale wow. and people in in these countries they um they really oh do we have a, a bad internet connection here mm. oh. I still have you on our end oh okay perfect um where was i ah, yeah tanzania and people in those those countries they they just see that people are paying top dollar for critters that roam around in the in the local forest and then then people go in the forest and collect and collect and collect and collect because they they need to 
feed their families and it's an easy way right. if you live in such conditions and um yeah that that is the problem and i think that the hobby here is is shifting um to towards captive bread and and so but there's still a lot a lot of wild catching going on mm -hmm. uh, interesting yeah it's so interesting it's like uh it's kind of like a it's so it's so wild to me that they're so uh similar in that regard i mean you know especially with something like you know look i don't know anything about mantids for example um but to me it would seem like a total no-brainer you when you want to talk about like such a low like low overhead in some regard you know what i mean like in both in terms of space and 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 heating and caging and material it's like you have such low overhead and the yield of those animals is so damn high it's got to mm -hmm. resemble you know like koi farming or something like that it's like how could you not take orchid mantids and just blow those things up and you know take 10 of them produce 5000 and just be like all right i'm just going to sell these for 3 dollars a piece you know or something mm -hmm. I think we lost Phil here. It looks like we lost Phil. He's frozen in a very funny face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. He's back. I don't know what's going on with my internet. I apologize. That's okay. No That's problem. okay. I was just saying that it, it seems like it seems like you you would be like a no-brainer in some ways to 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 reproduce and propagate some of these really yeah. in, especially like orchid mantid mantids and stuff like that you know they, in the u.s orchid mantids are really expensive here they mm -hmm. they are or not anymore um yeah but when i when i started with keeping uh spiders um especially tarantulas i i had this thought too if i can buy a sling for five euros and i can sell the adult for 50 euros uh big money um but mm -hmm. yeah that's not how it works and um breeding is pretty time intensive uh, if you have many species and you when when you are so into the 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 hobby or the industry i i, I know that you don't like the term hobby but here in in, in europe oh, it's, it's, it's common um but uh, if you are so deep into the into the hobby and the industry you you will spend more money than you earn doesn't matter how much money you earn from xx or something you always have a project going on you always buy new animals new new lightings new enclosures yeah it's i understand the thought behind it but um it often doesn't work out i mean there are some people who make a living out of this but um it's 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 a full-time job i mean phil you you right. know it you have the, the whole Euromastics operation going on yeah. and um yeah yeah, no, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> you know, it, well, it, it's, it's one that's so fascinating to me. I mean, you know, um, I, again, I, I feel like in some ways I'm speaking from ignorance uh, on a lot of levels here, but like conservation through commercialization, I mean, cri for Christ's sake, it's like the, the, so many people or, okay, I'm getting a little out of hand here. Very frequently you will hear things like the reptile and exotic animal industry is like another kind of market hunt in some regard, right? The market hunt that we had here in the United, in, uh, in the North American continent. And it's like, okay, I can understand the comparison. I, I don't think it's identical, but it, 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 I can see the resemblance in some forms. And it would seem 
so obvious that the the right answer is to try to take these, you know, what Philippe de Beaujolais said so long ago, like the from few many, right? Mm-hmm. Just take some of what we've got, yeah. what's coming in, just take a little bit of it, propagate it. But it really is so difficult to compete with um with the with with importation. And 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 mm-hmm. when that and it's like it, it is a such a it's it's such a, a hairy thing to compete with. And you know, you you simultaneously you want ethical importation practices, which there's no incentive for that, uh, outside of mm-hmm. some morality. Um, and, and, and yet fighting the importation process makes it more difficult to get the animals that we need in the first place to establish captive colonies. So it's like the, those two interests fight one another in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, the, the difficulties in making this like a viable business model out, you know, like it's okay. You're fighting the ethics of importation and you're fighting the difficulties in, in, in establishing wild caught animals in the first place and getting them healthy and then propagating captive bred ones. So that way we don't have to extract from the, from the wild environment anymore. And then also there's this other business end of the propagation of reptiles that kind of drives you to make uh, less than ethical, sometimes um, housing and care choices. Right. So it's like, it feels like there are these, these, these really challenging overlapping metrics that, that make it really hard to do this uh, on a larger scale in an ethical fashion in a way that best represents you, your practices and the animals and their well being. So it's like, it's, you know, I, I, and, and it's, it doesn't surprise me at all to find out it's also the case with various invertebrate types, but also it just seems like a, like why, you know, it's it, it like, for, for like, you know, with, with reptiles, I can understand people's beef where it's like, well, if I give bigger cages, uh, then I, then I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to keep as many animals and I won't be able to make as much. And I, and I understand both the, the monetary downside of that, as well as like the, the, um, like the space concerns and constraints. I get that. I totally get it. And I can understand. It's like, if you're keeping a lot of, a lot of huge animals and you got, and you got to give them all individual caging and a lot of space and a lot of light, like there's big, big economic cost. but with so many invertebrates, it seems like it can't, I mean, again, utter ignorance on my part, but it, it seems like it can't be that hard to give small invertebrates, a lot of space and a lot of time and a lot of good high level care so it's like, why wouldn't you turn it into some monetary, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about the, that. It's the big danger in, in keeping invertebrates because you can easily keep and breed so many different species. And mm-hmm. for example, let's say you you, you keep 100, 100 scorpions or spiders in these small, small cricket boxes. Let's say scorpions because that's more realistic. You um, mm-hmm. you keep like 100 scorpions and each one in a small box. Scorpions are just like this big, so doesn't matter. Um, but then 50 of these 100 scorpions give birth and you have like 50 times mm-hmm. 30 and it's all, it all, it's all adding up. And um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I experienced that myself when I was a bit younger and uh, yeah, I, I tried to breed everything I, I had. So I had, I had mainly some yeah rarer species that were, were not so easy to get and or i just got them from from a special friend mm-hmm. or something like that or, or they were they were wild caught from some import and i tried to breed everything and uh, sometimes you have you have offsprings of 
some huntsman spiders, for example, with XX with over 500 slings in them. And if you wow. have to feed thousand baby spiders in these, where you have thousand of these little cups and you have to uh, put one fruit fly each one week and you have to water it. Um, sometimes you say, ah, okay, I will just do it next week or I will just, uh, mm-hmm. oh, there's a little bit of mold in the enclosure. Ah, I will, I will take it out next time I, I water them. And then all of a sudden your, your whole, or the half of the exec just drops dead. And, um, these, these, these are the dangerous in, in, this is the danger in, in keeping or breeding invertebrates. If you get, overwhelmed too quickly and I saw many people that got into the hobby and in a few months they got hundreds of spiders and a year later they completely dropped everything sold off everything and yeah just just quit because they were overwhelmed and um, yeah yeah, you have to find the the middle way between these both pairs it's it's easy but uh, if you mm, Overuse is the wrong word. If you mm-hmm. overproduce, over, overproduce maybe. Um, yeah, if you missing vocabulary here, but okay. if you if you just okay. yeah, if you if you just over overuse everything, um, yeah, it's it's too it's just stressful and it's just work. It's not observing the animals. It's just oh no, I have to feed hundred more and yeah, it's not fun anymore okay. then. Well, I guess like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, like what's, but what's preventing you from say like, di- okay, different example. It's like with reptiles, I could just imagine, you know, if I got eggs, let's, let's say, I don't know, some weird universe where I get 500 ornate Euromastics eggs, that'd be nuts, but just hypothetically. And it's like, I can't, I can't keep all of these. Like I can't, I can't house safely 500 baby Euromastics, uh, uh, ornates. Right. Well, maybe I just don't incubate all the eggs. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. I, like I can, I have a lot of monitors that would love the, the eggs or well, mm-hmm. a couple, I have two monitors, but I have some monitors that would love the eggs. Uh, what, you know, why not just not hatch them all? Right. I mean, is that, is that, a, is that feasible or, or, or reasonable to manage or do in, in something like an invertebrate? It's like, okay, well maybe just take off half of the egg sack or something, but I, I that would probably kill everybody. Right. I mean, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's or is that just difficult not? to answer because yeah. um, when you hatch an egg sack, you can't just like freeze some eggs before or something like that. You have to hatch it in, in whole, of course. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I kind of do a similar method. I just uh, raise the majority of my stuff in groups so they can uh, feast on their siblings and, and, and grow faster. That sounds kind of cruel, but, um, for example, with the scorpions, uh, I work with the most. So with my, I have a burning passion for oi scorpione. I don't know if you listened to the podcast I did with Fadi, but, uh, yeah, I, I, did. I, I geeked out on oi scorpione in that podcast. So I have a burning passion for these little European scorpions and for them, it's, yeah, it's it's part of their of their life cycle to eat each other. Because when I was in in Italy mm-hmm. or in Greece, I, I found them, and you you always find scorpions eating other members of their same species in their in their mm-hmm. in their heights or when they. You don't only find one under a pile of stones. There are twenty, and everywhere are like parts of their their bodies because they ate each mm-hmm. other. So uh, with with these particular scorpions, it's it benefits them, and with yeah, I would say with ninety percent of the spiders I bred, uh, it it was really beneficial. But 
I, I, when I when I talked about this this overwhelming, I meant the the danger is if you get too many species, not not right. not breeding one species, but if you had you always have space for some plastic containers, and you can always say, oh, okay, I can just put this box on the top of the other one, and that is that is the danger. Yeah, yeah, well, that makes so sense. this kind of this kind of brings something that I'm curious about too, which is which is. Um, kind of the welfare considerations. Cause I obviously, you know, we're always talking about like um, this kind of leading edge in, in herpetoculture, uh, pushing for more welfare or higher welfare standards, I should say for, for our reptiles and amphibians. And I'm curious, I've, I've had some inkling that that conversation is, is also occurring within the arachnid hobby or the invertebrate hobby as well. But I don't have, you know, firsthand experience of that, not being a keeper in those realms. So I'm curious if you could speak to, to that at all, you know, and how that also dovetails with this, this um, issue of overdoing it, you know, getting too many species and, and getting kind of overwhelmed. Um, yeah, this is a really good question. And as always, there are many different ways people work with it. But I think in the majority of, of responsible keepers and breeders, the the welfare is is going up. Um, mm-hmm. When I when I look at my own setups, for example, uh, when I when I started, uh, I just yeah had had similar boxes for everything. I just had yeah the humid if the humidity and the substrate was was right, I just threw in uh, some a bunch of cork bark or some some sticks and I raised yeah didn't didn't matter what what spider it, it worked so it it worked mm-hmm. and it was good yeah. but um, yeah. In the last years, I, I started to look more into, mm, yeah, that's a whole different different topic, the the natural enclosure design. And I, today I listened to the podcast of, of Phil and uh, Dylan about the whole topic, what is what <laughs> is naturalistic enclosure design. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult. The, the problem is that many people um, for, with tarantulas, for example, they, they want to have an, an enclosure that looks aesthetically pleasing, like a dart frog tank or with many plants. They and they many people in the invertebrate world don't do enough enough research because with a spider, they it, it always looks the same. With a lizard, you have the mm-hmm. if the lizard is is sick or is is feeling bad, you can you can kind of see it if you are into lizards. But with with spiders and, and scorpions, it's much harder to see if the animal is not all right. And um, I, I often see really cool-looking planted tanks, um, but where the animal is uh, coming from, the nature doesn't look like that. And it really just—I mean, I mean, most of the animals we keep here in terrariums, they live under rocks that are like ten times bigger than the actual enclosure we keep them in. So, right, it's a whole ethical point uh, why we do this all here. But um, mm-hmm. to get to get back to the naturalistic design, I really like the style Phil is doing his Euromastics enclosures. <laughs> and I, I kind of do the, the similar thing with my arachnids. And I just uh, throw in a whole bunch of stones and 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 clay pot shirts and um, tiling roofs, roof tiles. I don't know the English mm-hmm. term. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, yeah, because it's, it's more important that you have the right microclimate than... The rep, uh, the exact replication of the habitat. So, for right. example, um, 
Centipedes, for example, many people um, say, oh, centipedes are so boring to keep because you never see them. And their setup is like just substrate with two pieces of cork bark laying on the substrate. And of course, the centipede is always under the substrate because it doesn't feel safe on the surface. And when you keep uh, centipedes in a structured enclosure with many rocks, with little pebbles, with leaf litter, they roam around every night because it looks like a forest floor. Yeah. Right. Right, totally. Well, and, it makes a lot of sense. And also, like, there's two things. This is something I've thought a lot about lately, where people say it's like, oh, you never see, you never see this, you never see that. It's like, well, okay. Like speaking, speaking of not not like imposing your expectations on the animal and, and its behavior and lifestyle, I mean if if so few of us do this for a living that means you're not going to be around all day to see the animal so it's like if you're expecting your animal to be around and out and about when you're home because you you presumably have a full-time job and a whole thing sorry i heard my iguanas were going nuts but um you know if you if if you are expecting your animal to be home on the off hours when you're not at work and when you're home on the weekends well, of course you might not think it's ever out, but it's like, I've got, I've got my Pilbara rock monitors. They're very shy, super shy. They come out sometimes, but they're very shy. And I'm not trying to, you know, it's like, I'm not interested in imposing my, my expectations on them. Like if they want to come out when they want to come out, then great. You know, that's totally sufficient for me. And I don't really need to see them all the time. Now, yes, there are things you can do to make animals feel more safe feel more able to come out and express themselves. And I think obviously that's awesome and you should, but at the same time, it's like, dude, it, it's, it's, it's just an extension of, of certain pets where people will ask, it's like, well, can do they do that? You know, this, do they get tame kind of question? And it's like, they, who animals are individuals. They're not broad groups of things. They're just like people, you know, they're, they're, they're individual animals. It's like, Oh, do Euromastics get tame? It's like, sure. Some of them, if you hold them all the time and take the time to earn their trust, but it's like you, you also, there are some animals where we have to be okay with them being an observation pet, not a, a handle pet, just like a fish, you know, but, but there's there, you know, and, and, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, sometimes I get a little confused by or intrigued by, people's um expectations for what what these things are supposed to be it's like oh they, they need to be handleable or i need to see them all the time it's like come on dude is that really the point you know it's like you, you just 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 to look at it all the time just to hold it all the time come on it's not just that but like maybe and and i feel the same way for your dog or your cat if you have a dog and a cat if you're keeping a dog and a cat as a pet and your whole expectation is just just about how they in, interact with you and it's like, well, I hope it, you know, they better just be friendly with me. It's like, dude, I'm not home half the day when my cats are home. Like they, they need to have their time and like, they're going to have a whole experience of the world and of life when I'm not there, you know? And, and that's okay too. That's a huge factor in, in what you're doing is like setting things up for when you're not around as well. I, I, I mean, that's like a, that's like the, like the dark matter of herpetoculture in the sense that it's this whole area of, of keeping that we never see, we never talk about, nobody thinks about because you're not there mm -hmm. or it's not visible in the same way, unless you have a camera on your animal 24 seven, but it's like, that's, 
that's the bulk of herpetoculture is when we're not around, right? It, it's that is actually like like exotic animal keeping dark matter. Actually, I'm going to coin that. I'm going to start. Gonna... For, for example, um, I recently got um, morning geckos a few months yeah. ago because a, a colleague and a, a friend um, he, he bred them for um, because he, he breeds some some snakes that are sometimes picky eaters, and he had three females left, and he he told me, yeah, I. I I can't feed them. They they are so cute, and I raised them. So I I got these morning geckos, and um, I designed the enclosure. And yeah, I really don't want to see them every time. It's I think the best the, the best enclosures are these where you have to to search a bit for the animal where you can't mm -hmm. see it all the time. And I mean, morning geckos are pretty small, and I got them in a big planted uh, tank and um, yeah. you know tank enclosure, and it's it's really fun because you can. As you as you said, Phil, you, there are different individuals, and I mean, morning geckos—they kind of look the same, but there's one female that is a bit smaller than the others, and it's the the most. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's always not always, but it's it's always the first one who uh, who comes out when I when I feed them. It's always the first mm -hmm. one who who looks around when I'm looking in the tank, and the other two ones they are a bit more shy, but uh, when the when the living room is completely still and nobody's in there or no TV is on or if it's completely still and I just sit there and watch them, they are all three out and yeah. just explore. And th that's just so cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, you know, I, I keep thinking back uh, more and more ever since reading this book that Roy suggested to me by Barry Lopez, Arctic dreams. Um, uh, thanks for that again, Roy. Uh, he, he talks about it in there. This, this idea of, um, you know, like this, this desire, this urge to like, generalize and package an entire group of animals you know like mm -hmm. oh yeah it's like oh polar bears x or 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 pigeons do y you know mm -hmm. and it's like no it's like they're not and and he talks about how the more when you when you talk to people who spend more and more time with a group of animals the less of a group they seem to be and the more individual they seem to be outside of things mm -hmm. like polar bears eat meat. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, sure. They're not, there's not going to be one polar bear out there eating grass or something, but it's like, yeah. but, but, but in terms of, um, personalities and, and, and general behaviors, preferences, things like this, they're, they're not, they're not one whole thing. I mean, I don't even, you know, right. yeah, my man, sorry. Look at that little guy. Yeah. Beautiful. Little bastard. He's so, he's so fun. Little, I don't know. I don't know why I'm. I just figured I'd bring him out. Which species is great, man? Sornata, domestic Sornata. Yeah, this little fella hatched this summer here, and he's he's actually beautiful. Super, yeah, he's super cool. He's really chill, but he's a great example. He's like super. He's super tame. He's about yeah. as mellow as it gets. Super relaxed. Yeah, he's so relaxed. He's so calm. But like, not all of them are like that, and it, he is not. The representative of all Euromastic Sornata. He's just himself. He's just yeah. a little, just a little dude, bro. You know. I feel like I feel like this is something too, where it's like it's really just about like the kind of attention that we're that we're granting. You know, whatever species or whatever animal we're talking about. It's like it's like no one would ever lump all dogs as being the same. Right. You know. Right. <laughs> it's like people it's and a part of that is because people spend so much time with their dogs most people you know that have dogs spend spend a lot of time with them and they they recognize their individual quirks and personality traits and all that stuff and 
this is something that like like coming from the, like uh, the naturalist community that I've that I've been involved with in the past is one of the core routines and practices in that community is is um, just a we call, we call it a sit spot and it's basically just like you return to the same spot in your yard or at the local park or whatever every single day and you just sit and observe what's happening around you. Yeah. And part of part of that is that like you, inevitably you're going to observe the same cast of characters. Um, you know, the same birds, it's like, because they're resident there and you're going to eventually start to recognize them as individuals, because again, they all have their individual, um, character traits, you know, or, or, um, their individual quirks. And I think that that's a really good thing to, for, for all of us to keep in mind is it's, it's so easy to generalize, um, you know, a species. And in some ways, like, you know, when you're approaching culture or invertebrate keeping or whatever, that's a good place to start, right? Because you do have these general parameters that a species um, might need to thrive. But I feel like the real cutting edge is like being able to recognize then from there, the individual quirks that your animals as individuals might have and, and then seeking to provide for those. Yeah. Because oh, they're yeah. different from each other. Oh man. I mean, I feel like, I feel like the, the more experience you gain in this, the more that is what, that is what feels like the learning curve, you know, like mm-hmm. when I got these, you know, uh, earlier at the beginning of this year or end of last year, I think I got these, um, hingeback tortoises, you know, and yeah. like part, part of the, part of, part of the, the growing pains in getting them to settle in and making them feel happy and, and, and capable here had more to do with with me learning to recognize like the body language of a tortoise you know like it it was it was a little outside my wheelhouse and so i i took me a while to recognize this is a happy tortoise this is an unhappy tortoise this is a thirsty tortoise this is a hungry tortoise this is a grumpy tortoise this is like this is what the skin should look like. This is what the shell should look like. This is what a growth, a, you know, growth marks on the shell looks like. This is what fungus looks like. This is what a, a scab looks like. This is what mm-hmm. healthy skin looks like. This is what good appetite. This is what looks like. This is what bad appetite looks like. This is what healthy poop looks like. This is what unhealthy poop looks like. And just getting that whole, you know, that long, long, long process of like, okay, it, it, but it's not as if I know about hingeback tortoises. I know about the ones I've got. You know, it's like, I know about the ones I have and I know what makes them happy. Now, now granted some of what helps you understand your individual animals is knowing a little bit about that group in particular. Right. So like, you know, about Conixus speci, it might help to know broadly about Conixus, you know, or, you know, or like, um, my Pilbara rock monitor, same thing with those. It's like, yeah, it helps to know about monitors as a whole, but most of most of that information and Australian monitors in particular, most of that information all was about helping me narrow my focus so I could then create the conditions under which those individual animals could flourish and express themselves as individuals, not as pill bar or rock monitors broadly, you know? And and I feel like uh I don't know, it's almost like you're 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 using the general to reach this specific. And then allowing the specific to let the individual within that kind of flourish, you know? Really right. good point. Yeah. I think what helped me with um yeah, understanding the, the general stuff first with doesn't matter if it's the body language of a of a certain family of spiders or of 
of lizards in not not you can't say lizards in general, but um, okay. yeah, of, of some, <laughs> some some reptiles uh, is is going outside. It's it's herping. It's it's looking for them in the wild. Um, for example, um, in my university where I study, we have a botanical garden, and this yeah. botanical garden is a local hotspot for herpetofauna. That's so cool. Um, I mean, it's it's not the original, just the the, the original German herpetofauna. We have um, Podarchis muralis, the the wall lizard, European wall lizards, and this species is native to Germany in some parts. But there are many subspecies from uh, from southern Europe that got got here by by uh, shiploads of of um yeah the stones you use to build railways oh wow yeah. okay yeah. and not only that but by some other chances too and um yeah. in my especially in the area where i live i live in, in western germany in dortmund dortmund is in the the ruhr area and this was um a pretty big industrial area back in the day so coal mining steel manufacturing stuff like that and because of that, we have very large, empty, um, empty fields of these of these stones and uh, many railways. And these these uh, Mediterranean Podarchis muralis, they completely go crazy. Uh, you can, from my house, you can drive in fifteen minutes in in eastern and western direction, and you will find some spots where these these cool Podarchis are. And sometimes they have blue spots or green spots, but I'm varying a bit off topic here. What I wanted to oh, say okay. about botanical garden, um, there are many of these uh, Podarchis muralis from, from southern France and also some some cool snakes. Um, but I was, I was walking there in spring and I kind of looked out for lizards and snakes and then I heard something and I was, hmm, okay, that's definitely a lizard because I'm sure you guys know, but you sometimes yeah. you can just hear if it's a lizard, if it's a snake, if it's a mouse. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, um, I was hearing something, and I was okay. That's that's a lizard, but what's it doing? Is it mating? Is it fighting? And then I looked, and it was a big male eating a smaller juvenile and stuff like that. Ah. If you can, if you can hear the 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 difference between oh yeah, a lizard walking through the grass or a lizard doing something abnormally and this really really helps you to understand the whole concept of an animal's behavior and body language so i can always mm -hmm. encourage people to go out to flip those stones to hear to look to yeah to, to feel the temperature when i go out to look for lizards in early spring um if i want to see if i can go out i just touch the nearest rock and feel like oh, okay is the rock warm enough or is it too cold so i can see okay maybe i will find lizards or high likely not if it's too cold yeah mm -hmm. oh that's that's a great so interesting yeah yeah totally agree with all that you know it's kind of weird it's like um it's also kind of how we we i feel like there's a lot of progress and like learning to be gained from from just like letting the animals kind of figure figure out what they like in particular you know because it's like you know, we were talking about, okay, so we were talking about, you know, getting, using broad general generalization to allow us to create environments in which individuals can throw. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, Phil. <laughs> Slightly unstable internet connection. We'll see. I'm sure he'll, he'll pop back in here momentarily. Right. There he is. Oh, all right. Sorry. 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 So we, we were talking about like broad 
generalizations and how that allows us to um, get into specific things uh, for allows mm-hmm. individuals to thrive. But you can also use individual information on a general scale to inform your general keeping. So like different example that that's come up a lot lately is insect food for uromastics, right? And this is like a, it's so controversial and it really shouldn't be like, there's no need for it to Mm -hmm. be, right? Like every one of my individual euros with one exception, and it's one old ass male Thomas I, who's like 15 years old, all of them want a bug here and there. They want an insect food. Like that, that's not a fluke. Right. If, if like every single one of them recognizes it as a food source, Hey, there you go. We also know broadly that in the, in the, in the natural world, there's not necessarily like there's, there's almost no, there's very, very few examples of like true 100% obligate carnivores and true 100% obligate herbivores. There's always some Mm -hmm. spectrum in some regard, right? Even if it's incidental, it just, it, it happens. Um, And like, you know, it's been this weird, it's been this weird fluke where like somehow, you know, speaking of naturalistic keeping, right. It's like the same kind of proponents of naturalistic keeping will insist that there's nothing natural or necessary about insect food for uromastics. It's like, Oh, you sure? (laughs) How do you know? (laughs) Wait a minute. Like, cause the last time I checked gut contents of uromastics yielded about 10% insect food. Oh, well, but then there's all these excuses that come out. It's like, well, okay, hold on. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to use those same excuses for why maybe I don't have to offer UV to my uromastics. Oh, well, that's not true because of the level. Okay. Well now it's like picking and choosing your information in some regard, you know, it's like, but, but again, a situation in which you're allowing the animals and their preferences as individuals to inform your work, you can garner a lot of information. It's sort of like, you know, this is a stupid one, but it's like, you know, when people say, uh, eating meat causes cancer and gives you heart disease, it's like, does it, you know, <laughs> like really mm-hmm. like, well, hold on. Are you eating good food? Or are you talking about just eating like McDonald's and you don't exercise and you don't do anything? It's like, well, maybe then mm-hmm. your weird, your weird burger. Yeah. And all the crap that's in it, maybe that, yeah, maybe that'll cause some, some heart disease and some, 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 uh, some cancer, but it's like, it's not, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not the same. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't I think know. you have to always try out stuff. That's the best part about the hobby for me is is mm-hmm. trying something new or, or mm, yeah, using using stuff that's not made for, especially for mm-hmm. reptiles like like uh, using roofing tiles to create yeah. basket spots or heights, um, and that's the best the best part. I really when I when I started this and when I when I grew up, I really looked up to the guys who had their basement full of enclosures for the last 40 years and just used like uh, clay um, flower pots as, as heights. And they just knew stuff because they, they tried out. They were the first ones to, to captive bred this or that species. And it uh, doesn't matter if it's, it's if, if it's fish, if it's reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates. I really mm-hmm. like people that know what they're doing and combine uh, reading papers, field experience, captive experience, and then just try out with this combination. Because you, if you say, okay, we we are we have products developed extra for reptiles, we have food developed for reptiles, enclosures extra developed just for keeping reptiles, and if you say, yeah, okay, we are ready, there is no state 
mm-hmm. further than this, um, that's very wrong because, um, yeah, always you have to always try new stuff out and maybe you figure something out that nobody figured out before. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's so important to continue to strive to innovate, you know, and progress. And I'm, I'm curious about this, just kind of like speaking more broadly about, um, you know, invertebrate keeping and, and herpetoculture. Um, are there aspects of, of herpetoculture that can learn from invertebrate keeping and, and vice versa? Like, how do you, where do you see ways in which, um, you know, maybe the herpetoculture is strong, um, you know, and invertebrate keeping is weak or, or the, the opposite of that, if that makes sense. Mm. Ah, difficult question. I, I thought about yeah. this, advance, but uh, of course I forgot what I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in I think in in herpetoculture, so, so so something that invertebrate keepers can learn from responsible mm-hmm. reptile keepers is doing research on the particular species really, really deep. Because invertebrates, mm. the majority of them, they are not really expensive. They are relatively easy to keep alive. And people assume because they kept other members of one genus that they can keep the, the whole genus just like the same. And um, yeah, that's not the case. In in reptile keepers, I, I always see at least the people uh, who I speak to or who are my friends, I always see this this deep dive into that one species where does it came from and they look at photos from iNaturalists and uh, for the habitats and everything. And in many invertebrate keepers, I, I there are also so, so many of my friends do that, but I know there's a, a huge huge majority of the people that have just like five terrariums, they just see the spiders from South America and they imagine the Amazon rainforest. Yep. And that, that is a big problem. And I think many people in the reptile industry do that better. But on the other side, I think um, what we can learn from, from in inverticulture, if you want to call it so, yeah. is, um, is, uh, <laughs> is uh, that you have to really look at things at the small scale, um, mm. like uh, what what substrate combination holds the humidity in these tiny boxes, or um, what what feeder items will cause the most uh, which 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 mm, how do I say it? Um, when you drop in a fruit fly, for example, um, mm. maybe just one wing will will stay there that the, the animal didn't eat, and it will nearly don't cause any any mold or fungi to to rise but if you feed crickets freshly had crickets the same size legs fall off more often so you have a higher um higher percentage of 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 mold in the enclosure maybe or mm. um, if you use springtails or isopods in your enclosures you have to think about okay if if they overpopulate will they eat my little baby scorpion or um will mm. they stress it out too much um or on the other hand you have to sometimes you have to rely on small really 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 small feeders um because i for example i hatched some some spiders that were smaller than a fruit fly and i could only feed them springtails for months so um, wow. with with inwards, you sometimes I have the feeling that the microclimate is even more micro. If you can, yeah, I, what I think. 
That makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like this is something that I've been thinking about more and more recently is just how um, many reptile species, not necessarily all of them, but many reptile species are microhabitat specialists themselves, right? And um, and oftentimes we struggle to create those microhabitats within the vivarium. And it seems like that is one area where, like, like you were just describing, invertebrate keepers really have have it down, you know, because you, because it's imperative, right? They're, they're um, even more sensitive microhabitat specialists, you know, the majority of invertebrates. And so it makes a lot of sense that that's an area where you'd have things figured out. And like, they, like you said, like the substrates makes a lot of sense to me. And I think a lot of times people don't, they'll just, you know, throw Aspen bedding for everything, you know, or something like that. And it's like, well, that's, that's that has its place, but it's maybe not the best thing for for a number of different reasons. I I experienced uh, I experimented with different substrate uh, mixtures um, for for years now, and I think in the last one or two years, I I found the yeah the the ingredients and the the mixture um, which works for the majority of my animals. Of course, if they they are more from from a more drier or more Mediterranean climate, for example, I just put in some more clay and sand than than earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I found the 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 right texture that holds humidity, doesn't grow fungi or mold that fast, and um, yeah, doesn't get too soggy. And recently, I got a bit more into plants. I mean, mm-hmm. not like like Florian, for example, or the other greenhouse boys you had on, uh-huh. those guys are just like way above me, but I just got into a, a bit more into, into planting enclosures and just house plants or especially bromeliads. I always, always liked bromeliads, especially the oh, general yeah. Neorigelia and Bilbergia. And um, I got a bit more into plants and then I noticed, okay, even for plants, substrate is not substrate. Some need more, more, more bigger particles in the substrate. Some need more, yeah, more, more, more compact substrate. And um, with with raising small scorpions, for example, mm-hmm. in, in like cups like these, um, the, the scorpion that's in there is like size of a fruit fly. And um, I noticed when you have springtails in it, it is, it's really beneficial because the scorpion can eat the springtails and uh, they keep it clean. But at one point, the springtails, what, what do they do? They break down the substrate for, for nutrients and stuff like that. And at one point, the substrate is broken down too much. And then you have this, this really fine powder. And this mm-hmm. is when the mold start, uh, when you when the animal poops or you have some, mm-hmm. some remains of feeder insect, this is where the mold grows. In the, because when you water it, the powder, it really it's, it's just powder. It's, it's not really good if the springtails used it too much. Right. Um, I noticed that, and then I just threw in one one piece of of dry leaf in each little sling cup, and the springtails they can first digest the the leaf, and the scorpion can hide a bit under the leaf, and when the leaf is gone, I just threw in a new one, and yeah, these are the the small things that really matter when you're raising invertebrates. Really interesting. Yeah, I never would have I never would have considered like food remains as a as a problem. You know. It's yeah. Like, I mean, okay. I did. I mean, your animals are really dry and hot. I assume. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I I still think about it sometimes. You know, like I I've definitely thought about like, um, like rotting vegetables as a problem. Like if they get underneath mm-hmm. a, a, a a hide or whatever. But even then, it's like in 
in my mind, like the way my train of thought would have gone is like, well, surely invertebrates encounter mold out in the world. So like, what is it that, what is it about mold that causes so many problems? Maybe that's again, total ignorance on my part. So maybe if you want to elucidate that for me and, and tell me why that's flawed logic. I, I can't say it on the scientific base. I don't know what actually the process is, but um, the thing is you keep invertebrates in relatively small enclosures because they are small. Yeah. So um, a small enclosure is more impacted by a little piece of mold than a big enclosure, mm -hmm. of course. And um, I just, I just, I realize if there, there, there are bad ones and good, no, not really good ones, but there are some, some, is mold, what does mold even mean? I just heard it yeah. in every English uh, podcast. I think that this, this type of fungi, I don't know. And mm -hmm. uh, I noticed that when you, when you don't put it out or change the substrate, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes the animal will die just out of, out of nowhere. I don't, and that's why I think it's because of the mold and yeah. When you think living living in the small box, and when half of the box is filled with this weird fungi, it's it's yeah, not a nice thought. So uh, oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it totally makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's just higher stakes in that small of an environment, you know, to have that kind of that kind of element added into it. I mean, it's not completely deadly. So if you if you see a little yeah. piece of it, it's, it doesn't matter. Even as a, so, uh, especially when you have white isopods and, and springtails in it, it usually doesn't even happen. But um, as I said, if the if the um, cleanup crew, uh, there's a really funny German word for cleanup crew. It's Bodenpolizei, which means ground police. And it's just this 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 word just exists uh, exists for, for isopods and springtails. It was made up by the by the hobby, Bodenpolizei. I, I love it. Uh, <laughs> And, that's, um, big, that's big invertebrates uh, influencing our nomenclature right there. How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, if you have them in there, that's usually not a problem. But um, yeah, just keep an eye on it. And uh, if you see mold taking over, just take out this, uh, the, the scorpling or the spider, change sure. out the substrate. It literally takes 10 seconds. So yeah, that can save you the animal. That's wild. Yeah. Never would have expected that. Really would not have. So, oh, so, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask. I mean, I know that one thing that you've spoken about in the past, Hannes, is just kind of like the responsibility um, that that herpetoculturists or invertebrate keepers have might have for a certain species, like longevity within the hobby and how you've kind of spoken about how like, well, you know, someone, someone will be really dedicated to a certain species and then, and then they might, you know, have a change of circumstances, they leave the hobby and then you see the species disappear from it. Um, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to that dynamic as of you's, as you've observed it and kind of participated in it. I know it's something you, um, you care deeply about. Yeah, the, I experienced it myself with uh, Heteropoda lunula and boy. These are um, huntsman spiders from, from Southeast Asia and they look really beautiful. They are big and... Um, yeah, they they really sparked my career because these were the first uh, big uh, numbers of animals I um, produced. I think produced is I really don't like the this word in in the context of of breeding mm. animals. It sounds like a product. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Were the two species I, I bred first in a mm -hmm. bigger amount. And um, this was the time when I was uh, yeah, free from school because uh, yeah, school was over. I, I, I graduated and then I had free time before I start, started studying. Right. And um, yeah, in that time I had, I had much time, free time, and I could always just feed spiders, sell spiders, ship them, and this was all no problem. And um, after the first few hundreds I, I sold, I, I started to see them pop up everywhere. So, so mm. the online shops had them. And um, so I sold in, in, in big bulks to the local online shops and to, to my I traded with friends and, and sold to private persons. So I, I was sure that many people have them now and that they are yeah, stable in the hobby because I only sell, uh, sold at least packs of 10. So when you when you breed spiders, it's it's always useful to buy at least ten or twenty babies, so you can have a a good breeding stock. And um, I, I just I always sold at least ten or twenty, and then I thought, okay, it's 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 safe now. My 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 breeding females are uh, are dead because these true spiders they normally or at least the genus Heteropoda they normally only live between one and a half and maximum of three years. Mm -hmm. um, they were dead, and I uh, kept some some babies of them. But uh, I just gave them to my to my friends when they needed males or something like that. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, they just like disappeared from the market, and people started messaging me if I had any left because all of their theirs died. And um, mm -hmm. I really couldn't couldn't understand that because, uh, as you may see, this is my. My my okay. I I will not show you around because the the room is really messy. This is my I still have at, I still have at home, and this is my bedroom. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. besides the the reptiles and the fish tank, I keep everything in my own bedroom, so it's not a mm -hmm. an extra breeding facility. And when I read these huntsman spiders, I was just a, a sixteen year old kid, so I couldn't really understand mm -hmm. why people just killed them all. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, then I then I uh, only had some some really small babies left and no no males. I couldn't find males, and my friends couldn't find males too. And then they were not completely gone, but uh, yeah, not not really easy to get them. And uh, when you think I, I sold like a couple of hundreds of them all over over Europe in the German market and to Italy, to France, to the Netherlands, and yeah, I'm that made me a bit uh, a bit sad because. Yeah, people didn't put the effort into to raise them up and breed them because uh, now now I always say okay you need to buy at least ten or twenty or fifteen of a species to start a breeding group. But when I started the hobby, I I just got like three three little specimens from a friend and I put all my effort in raising them and and finding the males from other breeders to breed them. And it's really sad when you see people. Yeah, not doing, not not putting the effort in because it's just a spider for ten euros. Mm -hmm. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't really uh, think much of making money of it. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, you can you can pay your your electric bills, you can you can pay your feeders and, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, the the animals that I'm the most interested in, they are not really that thought uh, that. Needed after in the market, the, they're normally brown scorpions that cost like fifteen to thirty euros when they're adults, so not really expensive. But I really like enjoy working with them, and mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's it's 
kind of a shame when people say, ah, okay, that's a cheap animal and it's not so 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 bad if it dies just because it's cheap and it's just an invertebrate. That's the problem with invertebrates. Nobody, I hope so, at least nobody thinks that way about reptiles. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a, the big problem. And coming back to your question is, uh, I see some some people doing really good work and really trying to, to get that captive breeding on. And uh, the whole hobby is making progress. Um, for example, uh, yeah, this is, this is going to be a long story. Is it a problem? Please. No, no, bring it. Um, so back in the day when I created the, the Instagram account, um, I started following another guy with spiders and he had a picture in his story of a Barilestis um, occidentalis. So that's a huntsman spider, but he had it like wrong labeled, like Heteropoda maxima. And because I was really into mm -hmm. huntsman spiders at that time, I was a bit nerdy and I told him, ah, you know, it's not, not Heteropoda maxima. And then, we, we, we became talking and um, yeah, he invited me to a WhatsApp group and I thought, ah, okay, yeah, we had, we had a WhatsApp group again with all the beginners and wannabe, uh, wannabe experts and uh -huh, no, but this was just a, a group like of five people who were friends in the hobby and just were, just were change, uh, exchanging information on the spiders. And um, yeah, then, then I got into that group and, know the people they are in there they are one of a few of my best friends and i made in my life and we we started this um the, the name of the group is is jungle visions collective and um it's all it's all founded by 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 robin and angie from from berlin shout out to them nocturnal exotics on instagram and um the idea behind it is that we can focus on captive breeding and exchange between other private hobbyists because um we can always trade like males and females of certain species and for example i'm i'm having the quote-unquote scorpion and true spider connections and and robin has all his ornictonine connections uh, and uh, we have another friend teresa for example uh, she was she was one of the number one uh, uh jumping spider breeders and now she all she she got all into one speed uh, one genus of of dwarf tarantulas and yeah this this connection this this connection really helped me grow in the in the hobby and we are um, trying to establish more of this this captive breeding um and 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 kind of lost here captive breeding and the natural style of keeping and um mm -hmm. how do you say not 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 the green way, but um, response. It's like when you're buying a paper bag instead of a plastic bag. It's it's a sustainable, uh, sustainable, yeah, a sustainable, uh, sustainable uh, or more sustainable way of of breeding and keeping these arachnids. Mm -hmm. And it's, it kind of really worked out because uh, we started to to have a table at some different German expos. Um, and it, the whole thing with with the table started just uh, I think last year. We had a um, Robin had the offer for the uh, Weinstadt table. Weinstadt is the in Weinstadt is the the biggest arachnid or, or, or tarantula expo in the world, I think. And uh, there are, the whole spider community is there. And three days before the expo started, he got the notification: okay, you can have a last minute table. And he organized everything together and. Um, yeah, and it completely 
exploded since then. We we made a lot of of great connections, uh, exchanging information and animals, and um, yeah, the it's a yeah. I kind of, so cool. I, I kind of lost the point here, but it it's it, no no. It started That's out with so this idea. small idea, and now it, yeah. it, it went really crazy. And I really like to give a shout out to all this this people in the group if they are listening to this. And uh, yeah, if you want, I would I would like to put some of them in the or at least nocturnal exotics. Um, Robert yeah. can answer all your questions. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, check them out on Instagram. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I have. Yeah, I have I mean, a, go ahead. Go ahead, Phil. No, no, no. Please go. Mine was going to be off topic. Well, I was just going to say that I I just love to hear examples of collaboration like that within within these disciplines and hobbies because it's I just feel like that's such a it's just so cool when people can come together uh, you know for the benefit of a species like that and um I, I wish we saw it more often. But go ahead Phil, what were you going to say? Yeah, so this is super random and it might be nonsensical. Uh are there are there any like mutations or morphs in any invertebrates that you're aware of? Um, in isopods, I think. Um, uh-huh. Really? Yeah, yeah. The isopod um, in an arachnid keeper kind of sense, you look down smiling on the isopod hobby because they are always keeping just feeders and ground police. Uh, but um, the ground isopod police. really, yeah, <laughs> love that <laughs> isopod hobby. Uh, the isopod hobby really, yeah, really bloomed in the last few years. And there are many species and some are really expensive. You wouldn't think of like one, one single isopod, like 30 euros, one wow. single isopod. And, You're right. Um, I wouldn't do that. And um, some, yeah, there are some, some like you can, you can select breeding isopods because you have them in colonies and you can see, okay, this one is more yellowish. Um, I, I'm not an isopod expert at, any measures i just keep like one uh, three species to keep as feeders and ground police so uh don't call me out on that but um yeah there are some moths in the isopod hobby um i think in in japan the beetle hobby is really really big yeah. and traditional yeah. and there are some some moths and some beetles but but yeah not really moths it's more like more green more light green in in Phalagrognathus mulleri for example um, or, or bigger horns and stack beetles um but i really i'm really glad there are no such thing as as morphs in in spiders or scorpions i know there's there's one breeder from thailand and he hatched some uh, hatched is the wrong word they are live birth but he, he had a clutch of um a, a scorpion species i think it was some leuru species and he had some albinos in it and i never saw that before what? Yes, yes, albino scorpions with red That's eyes so and completely white, and that was really cool. But I don't really think that the invertebrate hobby is suitable for this because um, if you take it more seriously and you get deeper into it, you um, a really big thing here is locality. So all the mm. sometimes it's a bit overrated because uh, especially. Um, yeah, my friends will know I always make fun of the Ornictonine keepers. These are um, Ornictonine is a subfamily of tarantulas from Southeast Asia. They they burrow in the ground in the rainforest and uh, they are always kind of brown and you never see them outside, but uh, don't tell Robin. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I always hate them then for fun, but they are some cool species, but the majority of them is just brown and under the ground and mm-hmm. 
every few months there are some undescribed new species like labeled Ornictonine, so just the subfamily, not even the genus, just the subfamily species, Sao uh, Guang, I don't know, some some place in, in, in Vietnam or Thailand. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I looked it up, it was just like in the same national park, a few kilometers away. So somebody collected them from another place and said uh. it's something else. It's, it's the same like people saying, oh, I've got my own line of Leopard geckos, I got my own line of Spilotus, I got my own line of Eumastics. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really, really interesting. It all kind in of... Other, in other sense, with, with uh, Oiscorpiines or the, the scorpion subfamily, subfamily I'm working with, since I'm working um, a bit scientifically with them, uh, I don't know, did you hear the, the episode with Fadi, Roy? I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I just uh, do a bit of taxonomy work on them and their location is really important because there are over 90 species in Southern Europe and they all look the same wow. and you really have to know which side of the, the mountain they are from. But um, in a hobby sense, with, with, with these tarantulas, it's, it's always just to make money. People say, new, yeah. loca new locality, when, when, they, when in, the, in the offer is said, in caps, new locality, new new blood for the line, new blah blah blah. It's it's just for the money. Yeah, yeah, uh, that checks out. Well, um, we're up. We're coming up on just about an hour and a half, so we should probably start moving toward um, toward a close. But um, I, one thing I want did want to ask you about before we get into our final question is just, um, I mean, obviously you you you. you mentioned earlier that you're studying biology and I'm curious how that has, how is like, how have your studies kind of influenced your, your path with, with keeping is it, has it changed anything for you or, um, um yeah. It's, it's kind of a bit of the other way around. So my, <laughs> my passion and my hobby influence the way I'm, I went in biology. Um, yeah. yeah, I have the, I have the problem that I am, um, Yeah. I'm just, I, I like the dirt under my fingernails. I like to go out and turn over rocks and all the lab stuff. It's of course, of course, it's interesting too. And it's important too. And it's really interesting sometimes. But uh, for example, the, the first semester I had was zoology. And in the, in the big, big final exam of the first semester, there was one, one question where you had to describe the, the body parts of a scorpion. And I was like, yeah. Ah, this is the shit, man. This this is gonna be my life. But uh, in, in the later semesters now, last semester it was like plant physiology and, and mm -hmm. biochemistry and biophysics, and of course that's interesting. And of course I need a degree if I want to work in that field. Um, but it, it's kind of tempting to just breed animals and plants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So no, but um, yeah, it it. It influenced the way I'm I'm looking at things because I always ask why. I just mm -hmm. don't see something and say, oh, okay, this 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 fungi appeared here in the enclosure, or the the animal had a weird behavior, and I just take it for granted. Uh, I just uh, I always ask, yeah, why why could this happen? Or I always think about like how does bacteria play a role in this, or I don't know how how do we, how do the scorpions react with with light because you know mm -hmm. scorpions 
they they don't glow, but they fluorescence under yeah. UV light. And um, I noticed when you just shine the UV light at them, they kind of they notice it. They they kind of yeah. uh, react react to it and and stuff like that. And I I think the critical thinking part, yeah, critical thinking mm-hmm. was really encouraged by my studying biology. And last year I had the opportunity. No, this year I had the opportunity to um, yeah uh, do a do a student job. Not like not. Like not that I'm uh, applied there for my whole life, but a, a student job uh, in f- in the fieldwork season at an um, yeah where I monit- helped monitoring reptiles, wild bees, some some species of mammals and stuff like that in in southern Germany, and because that was because of my university because one of my um, my lectures works in the same firm where I did this and this is in my city and one of my other friends uh, who I yeah uh, who I mm, knew from the from the from the study in biology work also works there so I had some opportunities to get uh, get some field work experience here um doing doing my my studying um yeah but but right now at the, I'm at the point um of course I I will I will make my my bachelor degree and if, maybe even master, but uh, right now it's it's much more fun to do uh, the field work, to go monitoring mm-hmm. animals, or to go to just go crazy in the hobby and propagating plants and, and breeding scorpions and spiders and making new enclosures. That's that's for me. That's I always need to do something that that is fun for me. I, I couldn't just yeah paid good in a in a biochemistry lab where I always just. I don't know, read uh, numbers of the photometer and uh, do Excel things that, that, that ah, no, no, that's, that's not for me. I need the, the dirt under my fingernails. I totally relate to that. Yeah. I, um, I have a similar, a similar disposition as it relates to all of that stuff. I just, uh, I'm all for all the field work, all the dirt, we call it dirt time, you know, like I'm, I want the dirt time. <laughs> um, but but the lab work and the kind of more tedium, you know, that kind of data entry stuff is always just like, I don't have the, I don't have the patience for it, or maybe I just don't have the will for it. <laughs> you know, yeah, my, yeah. <laughs> I would rather spend my time doing other things, but that's very cool to hear about. Um, well, I think it's probably time to move towards our clothes and, um, you know, you've heard the show, so you know our closing question and typically it's why herpetoculture but um, for you, maybe we'll modify it slightly. So to um, why herpeto inverto culture? Um, okay. uh, why do we do it? Why does it matter? I thought about this a lot, and I since I heard the first few episodes, I always thought, what would I answer to this question? And uh, it's really hard. I couldn't came up with one precise answer. But I think um, with with herpeto culture or inverto culture, what you ever like to call it, you can get a small peek into the huge diversity of evolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as a human, or as the human species, we are, mm, yeah, we are on this planet, or in, we are a part of evolution, but a really, 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 really small part. And with, with herpetoculture and invertoculture, you, you get the opportunity to, to witness some processes of biodiversity and they're not processes of evolution, but you can you can see some some products of evolution that you would never see if you never do that. And I think 
we are only living on this planet for a really short amount of time as personally and as humanity in total. And at that time, I personally want to, to get the most of information I can get about the, the whole biodiversity and animals and plants. And yeah, it's, it's, I, co I couldn't live without it. I can't remember a time where I, where I wasn't interested in animals and there will be no time where I'm, when I'm not interested in animals. I think when you would put me in a jail cell, I would, after a few days, I would think, yeah, okay, maybe I could set up an enclosure for XYZ species here because <laughs> if, uh, water and light is perfect. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, for me, it's just life, but it's too difficult to answer. Huh? Yeah, no, that's a good answer. I like that answer. I feel, I feel like I relate to that. Just the, the love for um, biodiversity, you know, biophilia, as E.O. Wilson would would call it, you know, just the just that persistent curiosity, interest in in this natural world of ours. So, and, relate to and it. it's really relatable too, because it's it's like I've often had that same experience where it's sort of like I almost can't keep myself from, you know, you said, oh, if I got locked in a jail cell, I would, I'll be like, oh, I can figure out something in here. It's like I, I kind of, I feel that way too. It's like I feel like I could. I could find about a million ways to do this if I really had to, you know, like, yeah. you know, if I, if I, if I couldn't do euros anymore, I'd find some way to put Mississippi slimy salamanders underneath my bed. You know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. Well, awesome. Well, um, where can folks find you on social media and if they want to reach out and talk to you? Um, only on Instagram. Um, it's, Der underscore Spinner. It's a, it's a German player of words. So uh, just mm -hmm. look at the caption. And um, yes, if you have any questions about keeping breeding or something completely else, just feel free to uh, message me. I always like to to talk with other uh, like-minded folks about uh, the hobby we all love. So um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, make sure to have that in the show notes. And um, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. I'm sure this... Uh, this is probably just the first of what will, I'm sure will be a few conversations with Hannes down the road because he's doing a lot of cool stuff. So thanks again. And, and I'm going to hit, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Phil. No, I was also just going to say, and uh, please uh, recommend more invertebrate keepers to us to speak to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, ectotherm Aesthetics on Instagram. This, this is Clemens, and he's also a biology student from Austria. He is in the in the group, in the WhatsApp group, and the the friend group I mentioned before. And um, he does he is the master of videography in in inverts. Just just you have to look at this profile, ectotherm aesthetics. He does amazing videography on on spiders, on on centipedes, on everything, and he's extremely knowledgeable and. Um, Funny, funny story. If we have the time, um, yeah, yeah. I I never met Clemens in in real life, and I always when I'm when I'm well, you know when I'm writing to someone, I always send audio messages because it's easier. Yeah. And Clemens and I had known each other for years because we had exchanged on Instagram and WhatsApp, but he never sent an audio message and never sent one picture of him or didn't have a profile picture, and we just. Um, yeah, we talked and said, "Yeah, okay, let's go to Italy together and and look for scorpions." <laughs> and uh, with with some other Austrian guy he know, and I flew to to Rome, and at the Rome airport, I, I took the train to some train station in Rome, and I sat there for, there for five hours to to meet a guy I never saw in my life. I 
don't even know what it's like. And then then a friend, the friend of him came up, and then we had to wait another two hours for him for Clemens. And then we yeah we met each other for the first time, and we spent a week in in uh, yeah in the southeast of Rome, just looking for scorpions for trapdoor spiders for everything, and it was the best time of my life. This is it's uh, amazing. <laughs> such a great guy. Um, yeah, just check him out. I I could recommend a lot of of other people. Uh, ah, I, I mean, if I recommend some of my friends, I have to recommend others. So maybe just check the people I follow on Instagram. Yeah, um, and I will occasionally have some some stories about other friends uh, that doing great stuff. But uh, yeah, just 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 check uh, out my my followers. Uh, no, the people I follow on Instagram, and maybe uh, just. Look up if you're speaking German. Look up the the website of Jungle Visions Collective. Um, this is the website of the Set Collective we have, and I think it's the website with the most detailed photos of the most tarantula species you can find online. So uh, wow. Robin really put a lot of work into it. Too. We have uh, day, um, information on on uh, data on on exact building and breeding and stuff for different species. We have some. Some information on keeping some other information, many pictures of some species you might never see before. So, uh, yeah, check that out. And, um, yeah. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure to have a link to that as well in the, in the show notes. So thanks again, Hannes. I'm going to go ahead and hit the button and we'll um, look forward to the next time, man. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>